We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. We continue with our online questions now, and let's continue in the economic vein for a bit. Uh, Sean Kasten, President Trump ran on the idea of aggressively pushing back against trade imbalances between the U.S. and other countries. And without a doubt, he's done that in some cases against traditional allies. But some of those countries are uh, easing policies and at least talking. So what is your assessment? Is this uh, a, a policy that is is working somewhat, not working at all? Well, I'm I'm extremely troubled by Trump's trade approach. And and I mean, look, this is a guy who bankrupted a lot of businesses and didn't do much in the international arena from an exchange perspective, I, you know, I, I guess we won't know until he releases his tax returns what he actually did. But it has always struck me that our trade policy should do two things. Number one, I'm a firm believer in markets and the theory of comparative advantage. If, if one person can do something better than I can, they should be able to do it and sell it and compete with me and vice versa. And that's as true for the international arena as elsewhere. We, we should absolutely use our trade policy to make sure that people who don't follow our labor rules, our environmental rules, can't compete on an equal playing field against our businesses who may have a higher cost structure. As against that, our trade policy also is, has been an, an arm of our foreign policy for a long time, right? From, the, from USAID to the Ex-Im Bank to the whole Marshall Plan, we have used this to bring forth the values that we want to see in the world. The what Trump has done in pulling out of all these international agreements, and look, there were parts of the, you know, the TPP I didn't like. There were parts of, you know, we did business in Mexico. There were parts of NAFTA that were problematic. But I'm really troubled when the rest of the world looks around and says that the U.S., who has long had a re- leadership position in the world, is now backing away. Because China would love nothing better than for us to abscond our leadership and take that leadership role and bring it forward. And so by us leaving the table... We are essentially creating a leadership vacuum that is going to be filled by people who don't share our values. And the trade policies that we've done, it's not at all clear they're going to actually help the manufacturers um, in the country. You know, we've got, you know, reciprocal trade penalties. We've got soybean farmers in Illinois who are hurting. We've got Harley-Davidson shutting down. And I don't think they're accomplishing what good trade should do. It's basically advancing a, a mercantilist foreign policy. And... I think there's one country in the world that's really committed to a mercantilist foreign policy and does it well, and, and they're, they're on the other side of the world. Um, uh, it's China. I don't think we want to play in that game. We need to, we need to have a trade policy that advances our values as well. Um, Congressman Roscom, you've also expressed concerns about uh, the steep tariffs on U.S. allies. Yeah, I found myself nodding with a, a number of the points that, that Sean made. And um, let, me, let me highlight a couple things that I think are worth, uh, worth our consideration right now. Chicagoland is uh, an economic region that wins in the trade debate. Um, low trade barriers help us. We're manufacturers. We are food producers. We um, have a massive transportation hub. I was up not long ago with a manufacturer in the northwest suburbs, and they, they're a steel manufacturer. They import specialty steel. The type of steel they need is not available in the United States, and yet 
when tariffs go up 25% on Swedish steel, for example. They showed me the letter from their steel supplier, and the letter basically said, not it. In other words, you're going to pay the 25% local Chicagoland manufacturer and probably more. And here's the net effect on our manufacturers. Not only do they pay more, but then they lose lose the sale. They allow more opportunity for competitors to come in and say, we don't have these kinds of problems. What we've got to do is figure out to, to distinguish between how we're approaching China, and China has a lot to answer for in terms of their disposition, intellectual property manipulations, product dumping in the United States, and so forth. But the notion of stepping away from these trade relationships with our allies is a strategic mistake. The notion of, I'll give you another example, Prime Minister Trudeau came in to see the Ways and Means Committee, and it's unusual for a head of state to come and interact with a congressional committee. But the point that he made was, he said, look, I, and I'm summarizing this, but I, he said, I will stipulate that NAFTA needs to be updated. There's two areas in particular, dairy and intellectual property, where we're getting the short end of the stick with the Canadians. But then he paused and he said, you sell a lot of things in our country, and we do. And that point, I don't think, is lost on, um, on us. Tariffs are taxes, and we want them as low as possible to create as much economic activity as possible. So I've publicly broken with the administration on this. I've said we need to be going a different direction, and we ought not get into a trade war. It, now, you're in Congress. You want to be in Congress. How much uh, can Congress actually do? How much will Congress actually do in the face of a president who wants to do something else? Well, you know, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure that uh, Peter can speak with us with his experience that, you know, the reality is that the president leads and the Senate often ratifies treaties. I would like to see in the House of Representatives a bit more recognition of the fact that having approved these treaties, Congress has the authority, I think, to say the president cannot unilaterally undo NAFTA, TPP, the Paris Climate Accord, decisions that have gone through and yes were led by the president and the senate but have been back but have been authorized by the by the congress as it should be and i think a a a more assertive congress that was actively fulfilling its role as a check and balance would be using those and other tools to limit the president's ability to act as a as an independent branch of of government let me put a finer point on that because <clears throat> i i get what sean's saying and and just kind of by way of background these trade deals were originally created to give presidents authority to make them sweeter. In other words, to make it easier to come to come to a relationship. The um, the ability now, <clears throat> the ability now to come back and and reclaim that authority has to be done by a statute. Obviously, a statute that has to be signed by the president of the United States. So therein lies the rub. So what we're trying to do is we've insisted on interacting with Secretary Ross, Ambassador Lighthizer, and others in the administration to give voice to the things in our constituency that are being negatively impacted by trade. My hope is that what we're in the midst of is driving a hard bargain, but we've got to be very careful that we don't do long-term economic damage here. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about what things Congress can or might do or might not. Uh, and that's in the area of uh, health care and such. Uh, this being an election year, uh, some people feel Congress tries to not do anything controversial uh, before the voters go to the polls, although apparently uh, you're going to 
start working on the uh, Supreme Court nominee soon. Uh, but uh, uh, Peter Roscombe, does that mean things like health care and even immigration reform are going to be on hold until after the election? I hope not. I think that we, we voted in the House on two very robust immigration bills that would have solved uh, solved the problems. I think it was regrettable. I think it was a vote that reflected the majority of the 6th District on immigration, fixing DACA, dealing with family separation, and enhancing border security. But a majority was not there. So then setting that aside, healthcare is a, is a real challenge. Because remember, we're having a healthcare discussion today because the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, didn't come up with what it proposed to do. I remember, Craig, I was on Michigan Avenue, listening to the radio, probably WBBM, listening to President Obama give his speech to the AMA. And in that speech, as I recall, he said, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. If you like your coverage, you can get, get you can keep your coverage. And then he went on, I think, in other contexts to say, on average, everybody is going to save $2,500 per family on their health insurance premiums. None of that turned out to be true. And the the exchanges began to collapse in on themselves. It was it was expected. The Obama administration said, hey, we're going to have 23 million people in these exchanges. Only nine million came in. And the the rates doubled in the state of Illinois. So an additional burden of thirty two hundred dollars per family. And now if you're in the exchange in the sixth congressional district in two counties, you're in Lake or you're in McHenry County, you only have one insurance policy. So the question is, where do we move from here? I think a majority quickly of the 6th District says, look, I want to make sure that prices are rational. I want to make sure that people with pre-existing conditions are covered. And I want to make sure that medical innovation gets to the marketplace as quickly as possible. And I think those are the things, and we can talk in more detail, but I think that's where a majority of the 6th District is. John Kasten. Um so a lot of disagreement here. Um, you know, Peter has said that he's been working hard on immigration. He was conspicuously absent on the discharge petition, which would have gotten a vote on DACA. And this is more than just not showing up. This is this is a lot of kids whose life is uncertain. I had a was talking to a teacher in uh, West Chicago who was 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 explaining to me the agony. She said, as a teacher, I want to tell my kids that if you work hard, you got a lot of opportunity once you graduate from high school. I can't tell that to the DACA kids. Peter had the opportunity to vote on that and, and chose not to. And so now we're dealing with patches and frameworks. With respect to the health care situation, um, I take pretty violent disagreement to the idea that the ACA is not working or that the people in the 6th District think that way. Um, overwhelming numbers of people I talk to are really angry at the efforts that Peter has led to repeal the ACA, and particularly voting to repeal it without even waiting for the Congressional Budget Office to say that 30,000 people in the district will lose their health insurance had the votes he took to repeal it gone through. I'll tell you my experience as an employer, we have fundamental problems with the healthcare system in this country, undoubtedly. The I watched every year our payments and our premiums go up by six, seven, eight percent um, before the ACA was passed. After the ACA was passed, I saw our premiums go up by three, four percent per year. That's still faster than inflation and still forces you as an employer to make some really hard choices about benefits. But it was coming down for reasons that make a ton of sense. The United States spends more per capita on health care than any other country in the world. And we have worse health outcomes than any other country in the world that has universal health care. I'm not suggesting the Bernie approach, but countries that have a multi-payer universal health care system 
all spend at least a third less on health care than we do and have vastly better health outcomes. What the ACA was beginning to implement are the benefits of that system. We should be defending the ACA. We should be expanding. We, I wish we would have had a public option in there. And we should do that even if you don't believe that people should be healthy, which I suspect all of us around this table do. We should do it because we want to save money. The Switzerland has a health care model that basically looks like the ACA but with a full public option. They spend 7000 per capita. We spend 10000 We spend $2.7 trillion a year on health care. That's nearly a trillion dollars in savings that we could use to prop up other pieces of the system if we think about learning from what our best-in-class competitors are doing rather than trying to break the system we have, as, as Peter has done. Uh, since repeal and replace hasn't gone where everybody thought it would, even on both sides, uh, should Congress be about fixing what exists, and will it ever be about that? So I think just a couple points of distinction. One is Sean mentions the Swiss model. The Swiss model is interesting in that they don't they don't have a Medicare system. They don't have a Medicaid system. So over comparisons to the Swiss model, I think, um, fall short. The second thing is um, Sean is basically in favor of a program that's in the vernacular. It's known as Medicare for all. But Peter, that's decidedly not true. That's okay. a total mischaracterization. So the the here's the point. So we've got to move forward. And the question is, how do we move forward? We're going to be moving a bill that has, as it relates to health savings accounts, enhancing health savings accounts, letting people control more of their of their first dollar in. The administration just announced, which I think is a terrific idea, the expansion of um, uh, association health plans. So allowing individuals and small businesses together to be able to pool together vis-a-vis insurance, insurance companies and get better marketplace outcomes. We eliminated or we delayed the imposition of what was known as the health insurance tax. I had a meeting with some of the employees, constituent employees at Aetna out in Downers Grove, and they said as a result of that, they were able to enhance their Medicare program and their Medicare Advantage operations in order to make more features available to more seniors. So I think what we need is more flexibility and more ability while protecting people with pre-existing conditions and moving innovation through at a way that is much more satisfying. I worked with President Obama on a bipartisan basis, as did others, on the 21st Century Cures Act, which expedites the evaluation of medical technologies. If I okay, if I could, I want to I want to, you know, one of the one of the lessons I learned early on in my career in negotiation is watch someone's feet, not their lips. What Peter said is is wonderful. We need to look at his votes. The votes he took to repeal the AC would have completely removed the pre-existing conditions protection. It's nice to say you were for it. Your votes belie that. Number two, um, you're absolutely right that we need to defend and protect Medicare and Medicaid. When the tax bill that you sponsored and authored was being led and people were saying, what are we going to do about $2.3 trillion of deficits in the system, there were conversations from OMB and others saying, well, the economy will grow out of this. We'll somehow hit 4 or 5% growth rates. Peter and his party are now saying that because of the deficits they created, we need to take a hard look at reducing the benefits of Social Security and Medicare, not protecting it. Peter is not or, saying that, nor is his party. I mean, with all due respect. Okay, let's, uh, let's move on. But this brings up uh, one of the things we wanted to move on to. Uh, and that is uh, more a little bit about politics uh, and, and some, some of the political rhetoric. 
Uh, Sean Caston, you lashed out at a commercial that uh, Peter Roskam was uh, airing online that might otherwise have been considered a feel-good ad. It's a disabled man saying that the congressman helped him and that he didn't seem to care whether uh, this uh, constituent was a Democrat or a Republican. What is the point that you were making when you put out a press release basically uh, criticizing that ad? I have never had a job where I had to be anything but completely honest about what I believe and what I stand for. You can't run a business and maintain the credibility of your credibility with your employees if you're inconsistent. To vote to repeal the ACA, to to advance positions, I mean, talking about health savings accounts, a health savings account is great if you have money to set aside for it. We need to have a health care system that, that, yes, has competitive discipline and people can participate in it if they have the means, but also cover people who are less fortunate. And to vote in the way that Peter has done, and then to have the temerity to put someone up and say, I'm actually looking out for the less fortunate, that is completely at odds with his tax bill votes, completely at odds with his efforts to repeal the ACA. And, you know, as an example that I find particularly galling, there's, a, there's still a video on Peter's website today saying that the Violence Against Women Act is a great thing. He voted against it. And I, get, I do get upset when people mischaracterize their convictions. And, and that's troubling to me, and I'm, I, I don't think that's a matter of civility to call people out for being consist- inconsistent. Peter Raskin. Well, it's no surprise that I'm opposed to the ACA. I voted against it in, when it went in place and have been reelected by very significant majorities in the House of Representatives uh, from the 6th District. But I think the problem is that, that Sean's overcharacterization um, and, and really some vitriol where he says his morals, uh, his morals let him lie, talking about me, or making some pretty... Uh, untoward jokes about Mike Pence and Mrs. Pence or my interest in working on a bipartisan basis uh, on opioids is is BS or uh, Sean Caston's tweet uh, when Trey Gowdy announced his retirement, a highly regarded former prosecutor who served eight years when the going gets tough, hack politicians who never should have served on their village board, much less Congress, get quitting. Sean criticized me on Twitter just recently where he said he was quoting a, uh, a Politico article about immigration. Quote, they phoned Peter Roskam, but he was out of town, end quote. That's the political, political piece. And then Sean goes on to say, I have no idea what that means, but I promise that when all when, I promise that when elected, I will maintain my current cell phone plan with unlimited roaming to stay in touch. That was a day that my wife was scheduled for surgery. So what I'm what I'm suggesting is um, the impulsive nature of criticizing other people, impugning their motives. It's not an effective way to influence others in a highly charged environment already. So my sense is what the sixth district needs is less drama, less hyperbole and more about getting things done and finding common ground. Uh, let me let me ask a question of you now, and that, that brings up another issue when it comes to politics. Uh, your campaign war chest was recently pegged at about $2 million. Uh, it could be higher than that by now. Uh, Sean Castens is considerably less than that, but he's also able to self-fund. Uh, my overall question is, should the public be worried about a political system where... These are real issues about what drives elections, the, that who has how much money and, and can 
and, and how they get it. Well, Sean told us in one of his podcasts that he's a multimillionaire. And as a result of selling his company, he made a decision about what he was going to do and gave it some time and decided to run for Congress. And how he spends his money and how his father spends his money, it's their prerogative. But they decided to spend nearly a million dollars in the 6th Congressional Race, Democratic Primary. And one of the organizations that Sean's father funded went after one of the opponents, Kelly Mazeski. This is the Sunshine Pack and a mailer that says, haven't we had enough of fake news and politicians? And it goes on and on and on, demeaning Kelly Mazeski's qualifications, characterizing them as fake. So if you're wealthy, you can write a check for your own campaign. Self is a, Sean is a self-described multimillionaire, and he's got that prerogative. Other people, you have to raise money, and that's the nature of the system. Now, here's the interesting thing. On all these things that Sean has decided other people need to pay for, he's also for public funding of campaigns, which means he wants other people to pay for his political campaign. I think it's a disaster. So you oppose you oppose uh, evening the the playing field. I oppose evening. Oh, yeah, the playing field. here's what I oppose, Craig. I oppose compelling people to pay into a fund that uh, funds publicly political campaigns. We've got a lot of real needs in this country. Public funding of political campaigns is not one of them. John Kasten. Well, let's let's take first your question about campaign finance reform. There is no question but that it's expensive to reach people, particularly in an expensive Chicago media market. And if we are going to have a world where voters are making informed decisions, you have to be on TV. These things are expensive. It's, it's unfortunate, but it's a fact we have to deal with. The, there are two pieces in campaigns that are both problematic. The first is that it does take a lot of time to raise money. It takes a lot of time, and, and you know, I'm, I'm sure Peter and I have many of the same war stories about how much time we have to spend calling people. Um, that's unfortunate, but it's something we have to deal with. But it does come at the expense of, of being informed on public policy, unfortunately. The, one of the two reasons why public financing would be, would be helpful was that I think, I think we are better as a society if members of Congress can focus their time on, on studying bills, learning about them, learning about the issues, rather than, rather than raising money. I think that would be better, good for the body politic. The second thing, and Peter alluded to this, is that how much money Peter and I have our, in our bank accounts is probably less than half of the money that will be spent in this race. There will be a tremendous amount of outside money, and it's going to come from, from groups with with a, a lot stronger political agendas and much deeper pocketbooks than anyone in my family. The Cokes are going to spend massively for Peter. Sheldon Adelson is going to spend massively for Peter. That's not going to show up in his bank account. But thanks to the Citizens United decision, you're going to have a hard time telling who that was. And what campaign finance reform does at its best is force the kind of transparency that Peter and I both have to live with. You know, when I, I can look at Peter's filings, I can see his $2 million. I can see that the majority of it comes from corporate PACs. I can see that he's received over $300,000 from ExxonMobil, over $32,000 from the National Rifle Association. I can draw conclusions from that rightly or wrongly because it's transparent. I cannot tell in the millions of dollars that are spent outside of that system who is beside that and what favors were expected in exchange. And that's a problem that gets fixed with transparency and public financing and I think makes the voters more comfortable that they're electing someone who's beholden to them rather than 
whatever favors have been done behind the curtain. Uh, let's turn to international affairs. Um, uh, more or less, uh, actually, this is both, both domestic and international. Uh, Sean Caston, what do you hope or expect to see emerge from the Justice Department's probe into the Trump campaign's uh, ties to Russia? Well, you know, my, my hopes have probably long since sailed. My, you know, my hopes are that all of our votes are counted and protected and that, you know, Russia didn't meddle and that nobody did anything untoward. I, I fear that's not what we're going to learn. But I don't have any more information beyond what's in the, what's in the papers. Um, I am, I think I'm as troubled as everybody is that we do not know whether Trump had any economic entanglements. We've stopped talking about emoluments. This is a big problem that the Trump family is making so much money off the, whether it's Mar-a-Lago or the hotel in Washington. And we don't really know where that goes. The, it certainly seems to me just as a, you know, reading the newspapers that Trump active or the Russians actively engaged in the election um, actively sought to elect Trump. Whether that was collusional, who knows? Mueller will find that out. But Trump's policy sense of pulling out of international frameworks and essentially leaving Europe out to dry, as a practical matter, is effectuating Russians' foreign policy. Whether that's by intent or not, I'm very concerned about it. And I'm even more concerned that, you know, here we have Devin Nunez in the House saying the investigation is closed and we didn't find anything and we keep seeing members of Trump's circle pleading guilty or being indicted and lots more information coming out. And I think as a country, we should leave all the partisanship aside. This is not about sending people to jail. This is about making sure that people have as much confidence in October of 2018 that their vote was not unduly influenced or affected or poorly counted as they did in October 2016. And I'm really scared that Congress has not allowed that type of transparency to happen. Peter Roskam, what are your concerns? Well, the Congress has allowed the Miller investigation to proceed, and I've, uh, we're waiting for the investigation to conclude. Look, there's no question that the Russians have been malevolent in their attempts to influence Western democracies. I chair the bipartisan House Democracy Partnership and interact with emerging nations around the country, around the world on a parliamentary basis, and I've traveled three times to Ukraine since the Russian invasion. Now, for the first time, and I interact with members of the, the, the RADA, their, their parliament, also had the chance to visit Georgia and interact with their parliamentarians and so forth. So for the first time ever, the Ukrainians have lethal aid, for which they're really, really grateful. It was one thing to give them economic support, and that's incredibly important. But now for the first time, they've got lethal aid as it relates to the, the aggression of the Russians um, in the east. The Georgians are still continuing to struggle as it relates to South Ossetia and Abkhazia, areas in 2008 that were invaded. But I think there's a larger point here. And um, Sean and I disagree on the disposition of the, the JCPOA, the, the Iran deal. The Iran deal, in my view, was a bad deal. And a bipartisan majority in Congress thought it was a bad deal. And the only way it was entered into was through a manipulation, essentially, of presidential power. But that said, it left so much authority and discretion on behalf of the Iranian mullahs. I had the chance to interact with Prime Minister Netanyahu in Israel. And the point that he made was the ballistic missiles are pointed at you, United States. They're not pointed at us. 
So my point is the world is safer, I would argue, now that we are out of the Iran deal and now that we're pursuing other uh, other activities. I'm going to stop again because I want to ask one final question. We have gotten that far. Uh, uh, and uh, I guess, oh, you know what, I will start with you, uh, Sean Kasten. Uh, if you had to sum up your general philosophy about government service at a time when people are questioning whether they even want to go into it, uh, what would that be? Um, and um, let's say one minute. One minute. So, first of all, I have nothing but respect for anybody who has committed their life to public service, as Congressman Roskam has. It's a hard job. It's long hours. And you uh, um, you have to be motivated by achieving something more with your life than your than just your pocketbook. And so I have a lot of admiration for that. And I wish we, as a society, gave more rep- more respect for people um, who work in government agencies. The I think the central thing you have to do, we used to joke in my days of doing clean energy advocacy on the Hill, that the only constituency that is never represented in Washington as a lobbyist is the constituency for economic efficiency and the poor and downtrodden because they don't show up on lobby day. And I think the obligation of a public servant is to make maximum advantage of the people you have who have wisdom to share, um, but then also be aware of who's not in the room. And your job is to look out for them who have no voice. Thank you. And uh, Peter Roskam, same question. Well, I've observed, I think we're at, a, we're at a very significant time in our public life, and there's many people that are anxious about the future. And I think what we've got to do is recognize we're the beneficiaries of a system that is the envy of the world. There is no system that has created more prosperity for more people than the world has ever known. Nothing. And yet we don't feel that way. And there's a level of anxiety that's just palpable. So um, I do think it's good that we that we enter into the public square. I do think that the 6th District benefits from this competition between Sean and me. It makes us sharp. It focuses us in. It causes us to, to litigate these some of these questions. And the founders contemplated this. And I'll just close by quoting Thomas Jefferson. In an era of instant gratification where we want what we want when we want it, and I'm just like this, as, so is everybody else, but in an era of instant gratification, listen to these three phrases, three sentences from Jefferson in 1790. He said, the ground of liberty is to be gained by inches. We must be content what we can get from time to time and eternally press forward for what is yet to get. It takes time to persuade men even to do what is for their own good. We've got a good country here. We just need to stick with it. I want to just take a moment to genuinely thank both Sean Caston and Congressman Peter Roskam for uh, spending this hour with us. Uh, I think the 6th District benefits from conversations like this, and I am very happy that you uh, consented to do it. Uh, For our uh, online audience, thank you for uh, sticking with us. I will be back next week on the regular edition of At Issue. Uh, And until then, I am Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.